So this is Luke 13, verses 18 through 19. Then Jesus asked, What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Then Hebrews 4, verses 12 through 13. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Park Hill. How you guys doing? Good. So many smiling faces. Uh, welcome to Park Hill Church if you're new here. My name is David Wade and my wife Candace and I are embedded church planters, uh, actually in the process of being sent out to plant a church, All Saints Church, in this city, uh, in the City Heights neighborhood next year, like February. And this Friday is our first worship and prayer night for those who are praying about joining us on this journey. And so um, if that's you and you're curious, let me know. You should have already gotten an email, but let me know. We'd love to have you join us. Um, and if that's not you, please pray for this Friday that the Lord would bless us and send the people who are supposed to be there. Amen? Awesome. So again, if you're new, uh, we are continuing our series called God Breathed, which is an exploration of the strange new world of the Bible with the stated goal of increasing our trust and immersing our shared life in the scriptures as we submit to them as the uniquely God-inspired and authorized story that leads us to Jesus. And so today, we're going to learn more about this word story. Like, what exactly is story? And we're going to do that by unpacking one of Jesus' parables to demonstrate how God uses the specific literary form of fiction to communicate his truth and to open up new worlds inside of us, new ways of perceiving what's possible, ways of perceiving what's real, and new ways of understanding what God is like. Remember that the Bible is literature, but it's also alive. So let's focus on that first part. The Bible is literature. It's literally a library, each genre containing its own formal rules and subversions All good art has subversions, as well as its own context in which it was written by God-inspired humans. And these books, they were composed by literary geniuses, is what the Bible Project called them last week. And they're right. Like, if you want to write a great essay for your composition class, just study Paul's letter to the Romans. It's one of the greatest rhetorical arguments ever written by a human. If you want to write an epic imperial saga with battles and blood feuds and gods and magic, necromancers and romance and tragedy and betrayal, just read 1st and 2nd Samuel. There are things in those pages that put Game of Thrones to shame. (laughs) Or, Or maybe you need practical wisdom on anything from how to build wealth and govern fairly or just to be a good friend and spouse. You can read Proverbs. All the stuff of life is in there, teaching you how to become more like the person God created you to be. The Bible is a library of literature, and each genre must be respected in its own right, taken seriously and studied to be understood. 
We can't treat a poem like an epistle or a prophecy like a proverb, but there is a general way in which literary works, especially stories, shape our inner worlds. Like once a story gets inside of us, it begins to come out of us in some unique ways. And above all, the Bible tells a story. As Evan reminded us last week, the Bible tells the story of God's acts through history to save and rescue a people for himself. Now this story culminates in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and what that means for the cosmos. Yet in receiving this story, we often overlook the fact that God, for some divinely wise reason, chose to reveal himself to us through story. Like he could have just said, here's the math equation that equals God and tells you everything you need to know. Or like, here's the science experiment that uh, if you do this in the right order, you'll fully comprehend. And those things are obviously good. We learn about God from all of his creation, but he revealed himself to us through a book, a story that tells us about his person. God reveals himself to us in this way because story is actually how we understand one another. Like you meet somebody, I was hanging out with people outside, you just start, they share you a story with you and then you're like, oh yeah, something similar happened to me, right? And so you're like, oh, we're like the same. We get to know each other through this pattern and dance of telling one another stories, hearing what one another is about and, and God is like this too. Story is actually how we understand reality. We do this all the time without even thinking about it. Like just look at these examples of stories embedded in our daily lives and language. Uh, slippery slope. We're all familiar with this term, right? It's just like if somebody's about to make a wrong choice, uh, that might lead to more wrong choices. But it's, it's really a story embedded in there. It's like this image that there's a path that looks safe or wise for somebody to go down, but it actually leads to something more dangerous. They're walking on a slippery slope, and then there's this mountain in the background, this threat of destruction, all based on where you put your next foot. Like, there's an image and a story that comes with just these two words. Or how about through fire? Like, if somebody, you escape some danger or you make it through something as though through fire, it implies that there were trials and tribulations, that other things maybe had to get left behind in order for you to reach your destination. A simple one, late, late bloomer, you know? All the other flowers in the garden are growing and coming into their, right? But here's this one little bulb that just won't, you know? Like, that was me in high school. I had my noxima and my acne. You know, I was just like this goofy-looking little kid. And then eventually, I became the beautiful flower you see before you today. Like, so, you know, this is what happens. It's a story that helps us understand our reality. We, we understand. We get the point. Uh, we even do this, well, all of these metaphors and idioms, they kind of fall into the category of parable. Now, we might think of this word as a Bible word, like a short fiction story that illustrates a moral or religious point, and Jesus teaches in that way, that that's what it is too. And we still have those in our culture today. Uh, I have three kids, my wife and I, we have Henry, Maeve, and Idris now, and um, We've been trying to teach them about the gospel. We're trying to teach them the story of who Jesus is. But the problem is we taught them the story of the Chronicles of Narnia first. And so 
like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is their favorite movie to watch in our house. So I'll be explaining the gospel, you know, who is God's son? And they're like, it's Jesus. And I'm like, he died for our sins, but did he stay dead? They're like, no, Aslan raised him from the grave. And I'm like, no, it wasn't Aslan. He's sort of, it's like I get into trouble, you know? They're using one story to try to understand another. Uh, we're all like this. But for cognitive scientists like Mark Turner, it's, it's deeper than just the stories in our language. We are, we're actually literary creatures by nature. And parable is just the basic function of our literary minds. It's not just the big narratives like the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe either. Everything from up, in, out, down, through are these sort of micro stories that combine and compress in our minds and then we map them onto reality to help us understand it. See, for, for Turner, parable is the projection of story. It's the expression of one story through another. And if that's too technical, perhaps C.S. Lewis can help us again here. Turner actually quotes him in his book, The Literary Mind, when he's describing parable. Um, and Lewis is talking about a same, the same concept, even though he uses the word allegory. Let's, let's look at this quote. Allegory, or parable, in some sense, belongs not to medieval man, but to man, to humans, or even to mind in general. It is of the very nature of thought and language to represent what is immaterial in picturable terms. What is good or happy has always been high like the heavens and bright like the sun. Evil and misery were deep and dark from the first. And so we are created as literary creatures who process the world through parable or understanding one story through another. We're creatures with literary minds, but according to Turner, these are actually our everyday minds. They're used for basic processing of information and understanding the world around us. But we're also made in the image of God, which means that there's something essential to God's nature that involves story. Now, I don't mean God is a sequence of events or uh, a work of fiction. I mean that to truly know God is more than to rattle off a list of attributes and dogmas and doctrinal statements. It's not less than that, but to know God for real is quite literally to enter a story. Even what appear to be simple, factual statements about God are loaded with metaphor and symbolism and image, all the literary stuff of story, and that doesn't make them any less true. Let's just look at the following three statements from 1 John. Uh, these are sort of like the substance statements, the claims of what God actually is in the New Testament. You might have heard this before, God is light and life and love. You've heard this before, right? Yeah. It's not that simple. God is light. Does John mean that God is literally the electromagnetic radiation with wavelengths between 380 and 750 nanometers, which is visible to the human eye? No, I had to look that up on Wikipedia. I don't just know that fact. Some of you do. Um, no, that's not what he means. Of course not. We are projecting the story of light onto God using this visible, material, ubiquitous narrative to understand the deepest, most transcendent being imaginable. And yet, in a very real sense, God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. And all who walk in darkness and claim to know the light are liars, according to this story, because there's no darkness in God. 
And then the Bible tells us that this God who is light will one day fill all in all. And so everything that is not light will either become light or become what? Destroyed? Non-existent? Outside of reality? Like, it opens these questions. And it's the same thing with God as life. What do we mean by life? Is God literally oxygen, water, sustenance, and shelter? Now, those are all biblical parables and stories that we have from Scripture to describe who God is. But he can't be oxygen. Or maybe John's referring to the quality of our existence, the kind of life we're called to live. But then he goes on to talk about how this life that is God is found only in the sun. And so now I somehow need to be inside the sun to be alive. What does that mean, right? It's a story that emerges the deeper you dig. It's the same thing with God is love. What kind of love? What do we mean by love? You get the point. We're trying to understand reality through words. We're trying to understand one story through another because that's the way that we are wired. And since we're created in the image of a God who speaks words and tells stories, like who actually creates worlds with words, right? In the beginning, the Lord created the heavens and the earth. And how did he do it? He spoke. He started speaking. And since we're created in the image of this God, we're using the stories that are all around us to help understand him as well. As humans, language is the best tool we have. And the coolest thing, at least for me, as like a a writer and a, a reader and a person who loves movies, and the coolest thing is that Jesus, the exact image and imprint of the invisible God, the very word of God made flesh, God's heart in a body, God's story as a person, he, he knows this about us. And so as he was going around in his very real flesh and blood body, preaching and teaching through the Judean countryside about the kingdom of God and the cost of discipleship and what his father was really like, what do you think that he used as his primary teaching method? Stories. Jesus told stories to describe what the kingdom was like. Jesus taught in parables more than any other form. He he taught through extended metaphors that help us understand one story through another. And because we are literary creatures, this isn't something that he created or invented. It's a teaching style that predates his earthly body with a rich tradition in both Jewish and Greco-Roman cultures. In fact, many of Jesus' parables put a new spin on classic stories floating around the culture already. And he was subverting and inverting these tropes while surprising his audience with new interpretations of what reality was like, of what the kingdom of heaven was like, about what his father is like. And guys, Jesus was a master storyteller. His parables are loaded with meaning that was meant to unsettle and disrupt the inner worlds of his listeners, to to get inside of them and start to reshape and rework the way they processed reality. And many of these people who he told stories to weren't just the religious leaders, they were the farmers and laborers, the fishermen and homemakers that he spoke about in his parables. That's because parables are designed for us to see ourselves in the story to be thinking about them after the fact, to allow them to shape us. And in this way, parables are a paradigm of what scripture does more broadly. Remember, Hebrews chapter 4, 
The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word of God is alive and active. This library of books is breathed upon by God's Holy Spirit, and it speaks to us today. We don't simply ask the Bible questions or open the pages to see if this God is moral enough and good enough and true enough for us to worship him. No, no, no. The Holy Spirit questions us when we come to read the scripture. It examines our character as we get into the word. It's like a sword in God's hand that judges our motives, exposes our thoughts, bears our secret intentions. God uses his word to test what we actually believe, whether that's about this person or this thing or this theological truth, like what we even believe about ourselves. When you, when you open the Bible and you read something like, God is the Lord of heaven and earth, and we must, by implication, obey and submit to his will. Do you actually believe that through your actions? The scripture is going to speak to your heart and ask you that question. Or maybe, like Aaliyah said earlier, when, when Jesus uh, was baptized, the Father parted the heavens and spoke, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And now you and I, if you're a believer in Christ, you enter into that beloved relationship with God through Jesus. And so now he views you as a beloved son or a beloved daughter adopted into his family. And when you hear that scriptural truth, the spirit is asking, do you believe that? Or is it the voice of some accuser, some enemy, some thing that your mom said that's louder inside of you and in which you actually believe about who you are? The word is like a sword in God's hands. He uses it to, to tell us who we really are and to discover and help us see what we really believe about him, ourselves, and the world around us. And the sort of like natural, supernatural thing is that he does this with normal literary texts, poems and proverbs, epistles and plays. And Jesus did this especially often with parables but the Spirit breathes on them and through them to us now. And, and there's actually a richness of the literary form that enhances the message that we are to receive through the parables. One scholar puts it like this, Jesus told parables to let people in on his experience of God. Parables were his way of making God available to them. So when we, we enter the story, that God is telling, whether through scripture broadly or through the parables specifically, we are entering the story to experience God. The Trinity is making himself available to us through these ancient words. And so the invitation for us this morning, as it is every time we open the scriptures, is to open ourselves to what God has to say and to let it pierce, convict, guide, comfort, correct, and challenge us as is necessary. It's to make ourselves available to the one who has made himself available to us, specifically through the scriptures in a unique and powerful way. And so as we look at this parable in a minute that we read earlier, 
I want to sort of lay a foundation for what the first audience would have heard when Jesus taught this to them. And then I want to build on that with a few examples of how the church has understood this parable through history. And then we'll kind of end by seeing what the Spirit is speaking and asking us through this text today. Amen? All right. So here's what you need to know about the parable of the mustard seed. Now, this is a parable. It's in all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, but we're going to read Luke's version. And the parable comes in Luke's gospel. Jesus tells it on his way in what's called the journey to Jerusalem. Jesus is is on this mission. He's heading directly towards the city where the religious leaders have become increasingly hostile towards him. And he's on his way when he knows that they're going to reject him as Messiah and hand him over to Rome to be crucified. This is the big subversion of Israel's expectation of their promised savior. And indeed, the scandal of the gospel is that Jesus is not some warrior king headed to Jerusalem to kick Rome out, but rather to welcome all nations in to the one new family of God through his life, death, and resurrection. And this inclusion of the Gentiles or the non-Jews into God's family is a major theme of Luke's gospel, right from the very first page. And it's 100% aligned with the overarching story of scripture that we've been learning about. Remember, the Bible tells the story of God's acts through history to save and rescue a people for himself. And so here we have Jesus on his way to fulfill that story in the most surprising way. In fact, there's a few passages before Jesus tells the parable that express his frustration with Israel's leaders, their religious leaders specifically, for not understanding and even rejecting his ministry that he came to bring. And he kind of has this argument with them where he likens them to a tree that has remained barren for three whole years during the time of his earthly ministry. And there's these undertones of Israel's historic failure to live up to God's calling for them to be a light to the world and to draw all nations to itself, to God's family through them. I mean, this group of religious leaders had so misinterpreted the heart of the law that when Jesus heals a Jewish woman who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years, the Bible says, the synagogue leaders criticize him for healing her on the Sabbath instead of rejoicing at the miraculous power and beautiful mercy of God. Like they're living in the greatest story ever told and they have no idea. And it's against this background that Jesus tells the following parable. Luke 13. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. That's it. (laughs) After all that buildup, here we have it. Jesus using one story to help understand another. And it's a story about sowing a seed that somehow tells us what the kingdom of God is like. At first, glance, you know, it might appear simple, straightforward, or maybe even unimpressive, and yet there's books written on how to interpret this thing, stretching all the way back to the church fathers and continuing today. So before we kind of jump into the interpretation, I just want to ask us a question. It should be up on the screen. If you were going to describe the kingdom of the most powerful conceivable being, God Almighty, 
Think of all the language you might use. Like, really think about it. Divorce yourself from, like, the, the churchy words, you know, like love. Like, probably not wouldn't come to your mind. If you're just thinking of the, the most con- powerful being you can imagine, and you're going to describe that being's rule and reign, what words come to mind that you might use? I'll take all. You can raise a hand. Yes. Covering all, right? Just totality. Yes. Others. Justice. Okay, good. Yes, riches, gold, opulence. It's all mine. The cattle on a thousand hill hymns. Come on. Okay, I'm sorry, that's my Pentecostal background coming up. Um, What else? One more from this side of the congregation. Yes, ma'am. Magnificent. Okay, magnificent, totality, powerful, opulence. These are the words and images that would come to mind. It's funny that nobody said mustard seed. (laughs) Why not, guys? (laughs) What? It's because it's unexpected. Jesus' Jewish audience certainly would not have expected those words. They would have been more in line with what we've been talking about here. Like, what even is a mustard seed? Well, mustard seeds were famously small, like the tiniest of all the seeds, or or one of them. But they grew into these sprawling, shrubby trees that could grow over 20 feet tall sometimes, but they weren't really known for their height. It was more for their ability to take root in, like, rough soil and to grow wide branches that stretched out over their surroundings. They were also considered a weed in Jewish culture, which would have made them like illegal and unkosher to plant in a garden according to Jewish Levitical law. So if you're a Jewish person receiving this teaching, how could God's kingdom be like that? How could it be an unkosher weed that a man plants in his garden? Two like things can't grow together. This doesn't make any sense. You're a false prophet, is what they would say to Jesus. But maybe it's not the impurity of the seed that is supposed to be emphasized but rather the smallness of it. God's kingdom is like an unimpressively small seed that grows into a tree large enough to give rest and nest to birds. But wait, this is the most powerful being in the universe, the creator of heaven and earth. Surely his kingdom isn't small, but big. It comes in fire and glory with 10,000 angels tearing open the sky, right? Not this backwater prophet with these like fishermen that couldn't make it into rabbi school as his disciples and followers. What kind of kingdom is that? False prophet. I think that Jesus was on to something though. You know, John Calvin, in his interpretation of this parable, he, he argues hard for the smallness angle of the interpretation that this parable is actually an encouragement to the apostles and all future ministers of the gospel not to grow weary or to scoff at the humble beginnings, i.e. the small mustard seed of the gospel, because in due time, God's kingdom will prove victorious, increasing from one small seed into a sprawling, thriving tree. And I mean, in a sense, he's right. This thing started with like 12 random dudes and a handful of women, and the armpit of the empire, as I've heard some preachers say, right? Like Israel was this tiny little place and we're all here 2,000 years later worshiping the God that they talked about. A little tiny seed grew really big and with a wide reach. I think it's true. But it also doesn't take the parable far enough 
It ignores the fact that Jesus tells this parable on his way to Jerusalem where a cross awaits him. And as you guys know, when we read scripture, context is crucial. And what about the garden? Like it clearly belongs to the sower. Does that make the garden Israel or, or maybe it's the whole world? And who even is the sower? Is it Jesus? Or maybe it's the father sowing Jesus into the rough soil. And then what does that make the tree? Is it, is it the church? Because, you know, his life creates and births and blooms into all of us. You see, the questions that arise from just these two small verses, all the possible modes of meaning and interpretation, what, fear, what appears at first to be the simplest of stories is not so simple after all. Uh, but there was a guy, R.C. Trench, he was a 19th century Irish Anglican archbishop and a poet who was actually like a student of William Wordsworth, for those who are familiar. I see Allie nodding her head, you know. Uh, and and this, this guy, Trench, he's building on the work of John Chrysostom. He has perhaps the most objectively verifiable interpretation of the parable. I think it's the right move. Here's what he says. Jesus is himself at once the mustard seed and the man that sowed it. He is the mustard seed, for the church was originally enclosed in him and unfolded itself from him, having as much oneness of life with him as the tree with with the seed in which its rudiments or its basic parts were all enclosed and out of which it grew. And Jesus is also the sower in that by a free act of his own will, he gave himself to that death whereby he became the author of life unto many. I mean, this parable is about the gospel. It's helping us understand the greatest story ever told. Jesus sacrificed his life. He put his body in the grave so that we might have new life birthed from him. Amen. Bless God. Hallelujah. Amen. This is a beautiful image. The church growing out of his sacrifice, growing from his very crucified flesh into the increasing, expanding kingdom of God in a now not yet fashion right here on this earth. I love it. We even have ancient art that depicts the crucifixion as the birth of the church, like coming out of the wounds in Jesus' side with the blood and the water from John's gospel. Like it's a beautiful, apt, perfect image then what about the birds? What role do they play in helping us understand God's reality? Well, Ambrose of Milan, who was St. Augustine's spiritual father, was one of the first to describe the birds as the Gentiles who would come to believe in Christ and be welcomed into the church through his apostles' teaching, which he described as the branches of the tree that gave them rest. And he's absolutely right. There's a deep Old Testament tradition connecting the birds of the air, which is the language that Matthew uses in his telling of this parable, to the nations coming to take refuge in the branches of a great tree that represents one empire or another. The clearest example of this is in Daniel 4 in Nebuchadnezzar's dream and vision, but it appears again in Revelation and elsewhere in the OT. But here, in Jesus' version of the story, instead of a mighty imperial tree towering over its surroundings in pride, as the nations come to it out of fear and desperation, Jesus' kingdom looks different, kind of shrubby, unexpected, upside down. And it grows from the soil of Israel, not Rome, 
but this tiny subjugated province that the empire could and eventually did crush in an instant. And then the promised savior hasn't come to destroy their enemies, but he's actually going to die to them and welcome them into his loving arms. Behold the kingdom of God. Is that what you expected? <laughs> Here it is. That's you and me. That's this thing that we're all bought into. It's not pretty. <laughs> what we come to believe through our culture, through our narratives about who God is, what he must be like. Jesus is constantly correcting, challenging, and redirecting our gaze through scripture and a per of which the parable is like the kind of key example of how he does this. He gives us better stories, new stories that we can enter and become a part of so that we can live his reality out. So let's, let's piece all this together. In this one small story, we have the sower, who is the father or Jesus. We have the garden, who is Israel. Then you have the mustard seed, who is Jesus, through his sacrificial death on the cross. And then there's this tree and branches that are the church and the teaching that emerges out of it to become one and share in the life of Jesus because of the life that he gave us through his death. And, and that even extends not only to Israel, the soil in which the seed was sown, but to the birds that would come as far as the east is to the west into that family to find rest and shelter, to find home with God. This is the beauty of art. And it's actually the wisdom of Jesus. This one parable, because of its literary form, has multi-dimensional meaning that speaks to the church across centuries. And because the Spirit of God breathed on it, it is alive, and it asks us questions still today. To Jesus' Jewish audience in the early church that gathered in that upper room at Pentecost after Jesus' resurrection, this parable was absolutely referring to the inclusion of Gentiles, the birds, into the one new family of God. And it would have blown their minds and judged their hearts. Right? The Pharisees, one of the reasons they rejected Jesus was because they couldn't comprehend a God that didn't come to destroy and kill Rome, but to die so that even Rome might repent and find its home in him. And so they rejected Jesus as Messiah because of that. But for the Gentile Christians, like the Greeks and the Romans and uh, St. Ambrose, who would have come a few hundred years later, and even us here today, it's a cause of rejoicing that we too get to share in his life. That's how good he is. That's how big his mercy is. That's the story that he was telling when he was redeeming and saving a people for himself. It even included us 2,000 years later. But I also think it applies to what Calvin was saying. To those who partner with God in, in sowing the kingdom, preaching the gospel, ministering the word of Christ, this parable asks missionaries and pastors and all disciples across time, will you trust me and keep sowing even when the beginnings are small and meager and weak? Like, will you have faith that this thing will grow? Will you keep praying for that person? 
Will you keep serving in that ministry? Will you keep choosing faithfulness instead of uh, what your own desires are so that you can live a life that is a witness to those around you? Because we are the evidence today that, that it does take root and it does extend. And if you just trust in that small beginning, it will grow into something that lasts. And then finally, how could you say that, that R.C. Trench is wrong? I mean, because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we have become one with Christ. Because of his death, his, his freely willing sacrificial act of sowing himself into the ground. That's what baptism represents, right? If we die with him in baptism, we will be raised with him to new life. And if we remain in him, we will become as he is in this world. We'll actually share in the intimacy that he has with the Father and the joy and belovedness that he has in the Trinity, but, but also in his suffering and in a willingness to lay our lives down for the kingdom as well. Jesus says this explicitly in a different parable, which he immediately explains at a similar stage uh, to his journey to the cross in John's gospel. Let's look at John chapter 12. Now, this comes right after uh, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem where he's riding on the donkey, one of my favorite passages, uh, because instead of coming on a war horse, he comes on a donkey and it taps into this ancient prophecy that's all about how he's going to destroy the Greek empire that had subjugated Israel at the time. But instead of doing that, in uh, John's gospel, you actually see these two Greeks who come up to Jesus, they come up to his disciples and ask to see Jesus because they've heard about him and they want to know if he's the real Messiah. So these non-ethnic, uh, these non-Jewish ethnic people come to Jesus and here's how Jesus replies. Here's what it symbolizes for him. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The way that Jesus knows that his time has come is that uh, not just Israel but the world is coming and seeking access to his kingdom. And then he says, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. And, and as I read that, I can't help but think about Genesis in the very beginning where God said he, uh, each plant or each seed-bearing plant, right, has the seed in itself to continue. And so like, that's kind of like what Jesus is saying here. I'm about to sow my body into the ground to die for your sins so that you could have life and life eternal. And that's a free gift. But a proof of that life, a fruit of that life, is that you too become willing to lay your life down, to deny yourself, to pick up your cross so that others might share in this life as well. Unless a seed dies, it cannot produce many seeds. And you and I this morning were the many seeds that Christ is called to carry on his work of redeeming and saving and healing the world. See, Jesus entered into God's story to fulfill God's promise to rescue and save a people for himself. But in Jesus, God revealed his absolute heart that his promise is for all people, that every nation has a place in God's story. 
And Jesus lived out this story by paying the ultimate price, his own life. He is the parable of God, the story by which we understand exactly what God is like. And now he invites us into that story as well. We become the many seeds that grow God's kingdom in our own context, mirroring the one who sent us. And so as we reflect on this parable, which tells the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, let's also kind of reflect on the questions that it's asking us today. And I just got four of them. Are you willing to lay your life down for the kingdom? To sow with the sower. That feels abstract for some of us here in San Diego, but there are Christians all over the world who have to make the, the, the flesh and blood choice about this every day. And so you and I, we get to participate by uh, laying down our lives, our desire, our own will, submitting our bodies to Christ's authority so that his life, we die to sin so that his life might be lived through us. Next question. Do you believe that the birds which for the Jews, they were the Gentiles, but for you, who, whoever the outsider is, whoever the person on the margin is, whoever the person that your supposed enemy is, whether that's your political opponent, somebody that has a different sexual identity and background that you're comfortable with, somebody from a different part of town or culture than you're familiar with, are they welcome to make their homes in this kingdom? In fact, are you like those outstretched branches making room for them. Third question, is Christ's kingdom increasing in your life? Is it increasing through your life? Like through your own process of spiritual formation, has the seed of the gospel taken root in the, the soil of your heart and is it producing fruit? Are you participating in opening the scriptures like in our bread journal and just sitting before the word with the Lord each morning and or whatever time it is for you and just allowing that thing to search you and to know you and to cut you where it needs to cut you so that you can be pruned and made like him? Are you coming to opportunities like seek first is to worship and devote yourself to Jesus? Are you doing that in your own time, like putting your phone down just to pray and worship him, letting his kingdom increase through you? Are you living generous and sacrificial lives where you go out to those who have not and you become the thing they need? Fourth question. Are you finding rest in his kingdom? All of us, in some sense, can relate to the birds. Are you coming to Christ, to his open arms, to find shade and rest and shelter and nurture? Or are you seeking that rest that only God can provide in something or someone else? A relationship that can't truly sustain you, a practice that is more of a distraction instead of dealing with what's actually going on in your heart? Are you coming to Christ for your rest? So these are the questions that should sit with us this week, maybe even this month or this year, as we continue to invite scripture and the God of the scriptures to shape our lives as we enter his story.
the better story. Amen? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. You're here with us because you promised to be here whenever your people would gather in your name. We're lifting Jesus high today. And you said that if Jesus is lifted high, you would draw all people to yourself. And so, God, I pray that there's anybody in here who's never made a decision for you to follow you, to give their life to you, to to trust that you were the one who sowed the seed so that they might live, that today would be the day. And that they would come talk to a pastor. Maybe that would even express itself through baptism, God. That if there's somebody who has not stepped into the waters of baptism to join in your laying your life down in the soil and rise again to new life, that this would be the moment for them, God. And for all of us, I pray that you would use your scriptures, use this parable specifically, but, but wherever we're at in our journey with your word to grow and shape and challenge and comfort and strengthen us because it is literature, it's, it's a book of books, but it's also alive because you wrote it, you're in it, you're through it, God. And so please, Jesus, make your words alive and fresh to us today in new and powerful ways. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna come to the tables for communion. Um, so the tables are now open and you'll bring that elements back to your seats. We'll worship a little bit and then Aaliyah will lead us and close us out. Thank you.